0: Hello and welcome to episode three of Introduction to Sociology COVID-19 Edition. I'm Matt and I'm joined by my best friend and colleague, Horizon.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. We are excited to be here with you all. Um, And you will all be thrilled to know that this episode will be so much shorter than our last one. So thanks for hanging in there last week as Uh, The topic is just there's a lot there and we covered a lot of ground. So um, well done, everyone. Um, Today we are going to cover just a small portion, really, of what is a worldwide topic, a worldwide issue, um, and that there's just a lot of moving pieces to it. So we are going to be talking about uh, race and ethnicity, and we'll discuss a little bit racism as well. We'll be answering a few of your questions about our last episode on gender and global inequality. Then we're gonna move into discussing the differences between race and ethnicity, the racialization system that exists in the US. So then we'll dive into racism and some more commonly used terms associated with it. We'll move into after that discussing how we see racial inequality and the theoretical framework that uh, some of us know as intersectionality. After this, we'll talk a little bit about whiteness and end with colorblind racism. So this episode really is full of a lot of information. Some of it will be sensitive, some of it will be hard to stomach, um, but it is informative. Uh, So really, if you've ever discussed this topic before, you'll know that this can be experiences it can be difficult um but also again Matt and I want you all to practice just this this idea of self-care again like Matt stated last week we love this form of of education and providing you all with information because you can stop you can pause uh, you can move away from uh, you can just step out of it for a minute so again, just to be really brief, but for students who would like to um, create an outline ahead of time in this, um, go ahead and write down just a couple of words that I'm going to say and then give yourself space to leave notes um, just for hopefully this will be beneficial for you. So again, we are talking about race, ethnicity and racism. So go ahead and just in terms of some of the big topics that we are going to cover. Uh, We will first answer questions on gender and global inequality. And then we will define the differences between race and ethnicity. We're actually gonna start with ethnicity here. Uh, And then the racialization system. Uh, Then you can go ahead and write down the word racism uh, and then give yourself some space and write down racial inequality. Following that, we will be discussing intersectionality. And then we'll move on to whiteness and we'll be ending with colorblind racism. So without further ado, um, let us go on ahead and move into some of those questions. So Matt, um, how can we begin to finally end gender discrimination even if it's unnoticeable at times in the workplace so that promotions passed up and other serious situations can be avoided?
0: That is a great question. And for me, at least, it would involve having to be a kind of massive overhaul. We have to really look at how how we view women in specific and uh, gender hierarchy in general and how try and get everybody onto the same turf and make sure we are using programs like Affirmative Action and... Title Nine, those kinds of things in order to actually make everybody closer to become equals and on a uh, equal footing. But Horizon, do you think it's possible we are making people incapable of dealing with their natural feelings, especially ones that might make them uncomfortable? It seems like we're creating young adults who are not strong enough to manage their own emotions.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, And for context here, this student is asking this in in response to Matt and I providing um, what we call trigger warnings in relation to the section on global uh, and gender inequality. And I am going to say there is always a chance that we are providing space for someone to not directly deal with their emotions or natural feelings. But the reality is, is that if you are coming from a place of trauma, you have had to deal with a lot of these emotions. Um, And regardless of if you have dealt with them in the past, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's 100% done and over with. Um, So while I think it is um, important, yes, indeed, for people to process their emotions and their feelings, I also think it's important for Uh, individuals to be really mindful that our experiences aren't like those around us and to be sensitive to that. Right. On a, you know, like more serious note when we are last week, Matt and I were discussing rape, right? You don't want to make inappropriate comments about rape and you won't do that. If you know that you have a friend or a person in your life who has experienced that trauma Uh, just as easily you aren't, you know, in context of this week, one would hope that you aren't using um, racial slurs ever, but also around people of color or of other racial and ethnic backgrounds. You won't do that. And that is kind of the process. Like we all have experiences that aren't like those around us. And so it's important to be mindful. Uh, And I think there is an assumption there that if we are being mindful of others, we are removing their ability to deal with emotions and that's part of it right when we say you can press pause that means you probably have an emotion that's coming up it's okay to press pause acknowledge that emotion and come back to it so we're not saying press pause don't finish the podcast what we are saying is yes we know this information is sensitive yes we know it can cause responses in your body therefore we want you to acknowledge that and sometimes that means Pressing pause and coming back. So uh, I think maybe there are ways that we can better uh, support people dealing with their emotions, but we also can't assume that the stuff we are talking about doesn't directly impact or hasn't directly impacted an individual who's listening. So I think really that that's what it comes down to. Uh, That's a really good question. And hopefully I was able to answer some of those big points there for you. So Matt hypothetically, placing yourself in the position of a producer or director, what steps do you think would be most effective in reducing these portrayals? And that's in response to those like false portrayals that we see in the media.
0: Absolutely. It was specifically about the over-sexualization of women. Yeah. And that was a very, it's a very balanced and almost gray area because we have to go, we have to think... Yes, we shouldn't make somebody hypersexual, but we also don't want to flip it and, you know, make them be non-sexual beings. Cause that's just as dehumanizing as being sexual beings. Right. So I think because everybody does have sexual urges and wants to have sex, but I think it's a, just a fine line we have to walk and realize, make sure we're realizing, okay, maybe I'm making this person too sexual. And I don't know if there's any one way to really handle this. But Horizon, how can we encourage more inclusive environments for both men and women at college in both the classroom and general campus life?
1: It's a great question. Uh, I think so. There are a couple of things that come to my mind when this question is asked. Um, One of One of the things that I think is most important is to recognize that men and women are different. People are different. Uh, And, you know, and part of that is like, yes, men and women, but also people who are non binary or who have um, a gender identity that isn't uh, a part of the binary. And so I think really we can encourage more inclusive environments for people by being welcoming by welcoming someone to the table who doesn't look like you by holding campus events that focus on a specific topic that isn't typical to your knowledge base. And so in the classroom I think that looks like <clears throat> having those conversations creating that dialogue and again having conversations with people who you don't necessarily think you are going to could make great friends with. Also choose classes that aren't things in your, in your repertoire of academia. I think that is a big part of that inclusivity that we can create in classrooms uh, and in general campus as well, right? Um, and I, you know, for math students, they don't have a uh, campus life in terms of dorms. Do you?
0: I don't think so. I think most people are living in apartments or still with family.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So wherever you live, uh, but for a lot of students here in Spokane at one point or another, they have lived on the university campus uh, and so that that might look a little differently in terms of what they have access to. So those big things are just Take the time to meet someone who you wouldn't naturally draw yourself to. Show up to events where things are being discussed, right? When you think, oh, I don't think I'm going to like that topic about sports or about sex or about race. You know, when you have campus lectures, show up to the ones that you especially turn your nose at uh, when you consider it. Yeah, I think that is a big one. Yeah, I think that's good. Uh, One question that has been asked is why and how has rape culture become so widespread in society? And where else does this exist culturally?
0: That's a great question. More, I would say, critical feminists tend to say that rape culture is based on women being seen as less than and especially when it comes to violence against women, um, many feminists talk about how it's, it's not just sexual, but it has a lot to do with power. And so men domineering women is absolutely a, a huge part of American culture and uh, rape just really goes along with it. But we do see this culture all over the world. Uh, in every patriarchal society, we'll see uh, a domination of women and rape happens to be one of the most visible, I guess you would say, forms of that. Yeah, um, but let's go ahead and actually start the lecture now. We're going to begin with ethnicity. Race and ethnicity are often talked about together. They are, they are really complexly intertwined. But I do do want to separate them for now. We'll start with ethnicity. And what ethnicity is, is it refers to the distinct cultural norms and values of a group. Okay, so it talks about the characteristics of groups. This These characteristics include a shared history, religion, and culture, kin or ancestry, and a sense of shared destiny and or language. So when I... When I think ethnicity, I really think of where you come from. Okay, so my ethnicity is American, right? So we have, as Americans, we have a shared history. We may not have a shared religion, but we do have a shared culture and so on and so on. All right, you want to go ahead and move into defining race then?
1: Yeah, I do want to move into defining race. Just a little bit, Matt, you know, Matt discusses ethnicity here, and I wanna discuss that the separation of race from ethnicity. So, your race refers to an externally imposed system of social categorization and stratification. So, there is no true biological race that exists. Rather, human groups are placed on a continuum. Oftentimes, race refers to some set of physical characteristics granted important by society. Uh, So these are the things that, when you think about facial structure and facial features and obviously skin tone and complexion and uh, the amount of melanin that your skin holds, these are the things that uh, really define race, or that refers to race rather. Uh, And then I know I've talked with my students a little bit about this, but uh, race is socially constructed. Right. So when we have something that is socially constructed, it is the uh, pressure of society that values something that makes it real. So race is socially constructed. Therefore, it, it is real. Right. Like it being a social construct doesn't mean race doesn't exist. And we'll get into that later when we talk about uh, colorblindness. Uh, So, Matt, will you talk to us just a little bit about racialization?
0: Yeah, we live in a racialized country, right? It's the actual imposition of some sort of racial schema on society. What this means is that there are both formal and informal inequities that exist. Segregated schools and businesses, along with differentiated rights, what we're saying here is that there is this hierarchy in society with one racial group being above another, which segregates schools and businesses. And one one racial group has the ability to decide what rights everybody gets, what rights people don't get. And they have a huge part of shaping what inequality exists and those inequalities then go on and shape the lives of those in racialized society. Horizon, what's what's the difference between a dominant group and a non-dominant group?
1: Yeah, great question. So I think too, what I would love to challenge you all in right now is that when you I want you to just like think about the things that come to your mind when you think about dominant um, and when you think about non-dominant, Uh, Don't make this weird. I know there are a lot of weird things out there these days, um, but when you think about dominant, (laughs) I'm just saying I'm trying to keep up with the cool kids and it doesn't always happen. But when you think about dominant, it just took
0: me a second to get it.
1: (laughs) This folks is why Matt calls me his friend. Uh, So when you think about dominant and non-dominant, what comes to your mind? Uh, Most often, We are going to consider things that somehow put someone in a position of power over somebody else. And that's really the difference. This dominant group is going to have power and access to things that a non-dominant group won't. Uh, We know that racially people recognize white individuals as dominant and any other non-white individual would be often considered non-dominant in the bigger context of society and our understanding of race. So about uh, this specific to non-dominant groups, right? These are disadvantaged in, in context to the dominant group. There's a collective sense of identity. Uh, oftentimes there's isolation or segregation that takes place. And it isn't a, a question of numerical distinction. And the differences aren't as a result of numbers, but instead of, again, that power that, just, that dominant groups have over non-dominant groups. Uh, you think about, you know, we can pull this outside of the context of reason and consider um, your bosses. You have a handful of bosses and in your workplace, they're dominant. We think about our classroom spaces. Uh, Matt and I are in positions of power, quote unquote, so to speak, that somehow differentiates me to be dominant while my students might be non-dominant. But again, in the context of race, these include just the the simple differences of isolation and segregation, um, of like accessibility to basic needs, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so... That is what we mean, and that's the difference of dominant versus non-dominant. And uh, we're now going to move into a little bit of a discussion regarding racism. So, again, racism is sensitive. It's a sensitive topic. In us asking you and just recognizing that it does bring up emotions, our point in saying this is sensitive is to allow you permission and you don't need our permission, but we do want you to feel safe, so to say. We want you to be able to recognize these things are hurting my feelings, these things make me sad. I'm really pissed off, etc. 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 Remove yourself. Take a pause, acknowledge those emotions. Come back. And then please, in your three, two, one posts, talk about what these like this conversation has made you feel. If you needed to pause, if you felt great, like it didn't matter. All of all of those feelings and uh, recognitions of such are important. So, Matt, what is racism?
0: Racism is such a massive thing. I do just want to preface this with racism did not end in the nineteen sixties, right? With the passage of the civil Civil Rights Act and all of the acts along with that. Yes, it did. Absolutely did not, because it happens both at the individual level, right? So this is me being racist towards another person, me being racist towards Horizon, which, as we know, in the past has happened. But uh, we all constantly have to be critical of ourselves and our behavior of what we're doing that is furthering this racism. Racism is also institutional, right? So it, it happens at the institutional level, not just at the individual level. And we as Americans love to think, oh, that person is racist, right? That group over there, those white supremacists, they're racist. But we don't wanna point to something such as the criminal justice system and say that institution is racist, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to look at welfare and say that institution is racist. We Mm -hmm. tend to try and see, oh, it's just a single individual or a couple individuals or a couple small groups being racist, not the system at large. And I really do want to push that is a lot of the institutions in america today are racist and it comes from hundreds of years of supporting racist policies that it's now become and really always has been race structures Uh, but there's a bunch of also concepts that are related to racism horizon do you want to talk a little bit about prejudice
1: sure absolutely so we know that in in being prejudiced, right? It's this idea of like pre-judgment. Uh, that's like basic language, right? Uh, and so, when we think about being prejudiced, when you think about ways in which you are prejudging someone, right? These things come from our understanding of beliefs, thoughts, feelings, and attitudes that one has about a group. Uh, it isn't based on actual interaction, but on stereotypes. And the thing that I want to say about this is that while we are discussing this in, in groups, um, we are prejudiced towards individuals as well. Uh, and it is, I am hesitant to say natural or like normal, but we have been conditioned to place judgment on people before we know them. Uh, so it's very much ingrained in the way that society is structured and works. So, but that is really a simple definition and understanding of what it means to be prejudiced. And that is having any beliefs, thoughts, feelings, or attitudes about a group that aren't based on interaction, but are on, based in stereotypes.
0: Yeah. And when we take this prejudice and use it to further actions against one another, we call this discrimination. Right. So if we're choosing uh, to not hire somebody because of the color of their skin or we choose not to buy a paper from a certain individual because of the color of their skin or because of whatever race they are, that's discrimination.
1: Right. And a lot of these uh, come and turn as a result of the stereotypes that we have created and uh, attached to groups and people. Uh, And so these are things of oversimplified generalizations about groups of people. There can be both positive and negative. Uh, They are often like the same ones we hear. So we'll say, oh yeah, these are like recycled stereotypes. It's because we've heard them. And we being like general we, Uh, have heard stereotypes, but they are not new. This isn't new information. They aren't new stereotypes. And the sources of these, again, I I talked a little bit just briefly about it being socially, like socialized in what we glean from society. So these sources of stereotypes come from our parents, uh, peers, the media, right? Uh, And So think about a movie, there's always, you know, we often see, this is such a hard process for me, because I know all of the stereotypes, but you never want to use them, right? Um, But these are things, I I can use myself for an example here. Um, I grew up as an athlete and being really active and in sports. And, you know, you often hear, well, like, because you're a person of color, you are a great athlete, you're a great basketball player, you're a remarkable runner or, you know, in reverse, there's a movie called white man can't jump. And that's all on basketball with like a white man and PO- people of color. So if I say POC, it's just shorthand for people of color. So there are all of these stereotypes that, that we attach. These are food related, you know, so what people of certain races drink or eat or the music they listen to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of these have to come from somewhere. When you think about little kids who are friends and are of different racial backgrounds, eventually they are socialized and they recognize their racial differences. And someone eventually uh, sources their understanding of individuals uh, creating those stereotypes. So, Matt, what is a scapegoat?
0: Scapegoats, we think of... uh... Or well, one explanation that theorists have given is that scapegoat theory, okay, Mm -hmm. which is really just the majority, so white people, displacing their unfocused aggression onto minority groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, We really see this all the time. One example that I love to use is, say, I'm, well, okay. I am a white man and say I applied. (laughs)
1: Yeah, let's just say you're a white man.
0: Yeah, let's just say it for now. But say I applied to Harvard and didn't get in. Okay. I can look at it and say, oh, maybe I'm not qualified enough to get into Harvard. Okay. Or I could think of it as... Oh, because affirmative action exists, they're giving a person of color that position instead of me. Another example that actually really hits, hits home to me is when I was first going into college, I couldn't find any scholarships. Honestly, I wasn't really searching that hard. But I remember this being told to me over and over again. You're a middle-class white man. There's no more scholarships for you. It's all about minorities and women who are scholarships are out there for, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that idea of where instead of actually realizing, yeah, there are scholarships. I just really need to try harder. I'm going to blame it on a different minority group instead of me being stupid
1: great uh he's not always stupid you guys
0: Uh, that's that's debatable but yeah (laughs) (laughs)
1: right
0: yeah i was gonna say we've been dancing around this idea of inequality Mm -hmm. and do you want to tell us a little bit about how inequality exists in our political representation
1: Yeah, I'm going to tell you how inequality exists in so many things. Um, But I'll start with political representation. How about that? Works for me. You know, just so first of all, in in political representation, we do see racial inequality. Like it's the obvious one is Barack Obama becoming president, right? Um, I can tell you, the exact place I was when when he was voted into office. I can tell you the classroom I was in, how I was feeling, all of these things, because while I know that it, it was a monumental moment, it's, it's historical for everyone to have to, as a person of color, to see political representation. And you don't have to agree with all of someone's political I- ideas to recognize how monumental that day was. You don't have to, have, you don't need to be a Democrat to recognize the historical implications of having Barack Obama become president that that had. And um, both with that, and as we are looking to the next election, um, a big point of racial inequality that we see is in voter ID laws. Uh, and this is messy and complicated because there's such a fine line on how these things take place. Um, And some of those examples are like being forced to have an ID on them to vote uh, and not everyone being able to afford an ID, right? So oftentimes you go to the voting booth, you have your driver's license, you give it to the person who's taking your, to get you like signed up to go into a voting booth. And they might say, sorry. This is the address you put down, but your driver's license is one letter off. We won't let you vote. You'll see this uh, recognizing that often in urban areas and in different communities that of our lower SES, uh, socioeconomic status, not everyone can afford an ID and not everyone drives because they live in a city. So they don't have an ID to take with them. Uh, we see this happening in voter laws and knowing your rights about uh, being able to vote as a felon. We see this in robocalling uh, people who can't access a voting booth. We see this in people not having access to translators to translate their ballot. We see this in wheelchair accessibility, in being able to vote when you're blind etc, etc. There are so many ways, but in this racial piece, we see these, this in identity and in robocalling and uh, and felony disenfranchisement that exists, right, for people of color who um, have come out of prison or jail and just don't have the knowledge about their rights in voting spaces. So those are some of those things that take place. And then not having the day off, right, a lot of minorities can't afford to take a day off and vood- voting booths close early. Uh, so not being able to make it in time. So they either have to miss work, which can inevitably get them fired or they can't afford to miss work. And so they choose to not participate in elections because of, because of that. Uh, Matt, do we see enough polling places uh, accessibility?
0: absolutely not and really this primarily happens in minority areas right in urban centers is another way of saying that we really don't see nearly enough polling places and the lines in those polling places that do exist are so long as you you end up having to spend hours waiting just to just to vote so remember if you have to miss work to vote, and then it's not just a 20 minute thing, you go in, vote real quick, come out. No, it could take hours to just stand in line and maybe eventually get to vote.
1: Yeah, I think it's so important to to recognize just um, as, you know, many of us uh, have different levels of privileges, like these are these are points in which you can like acknowledge that where either your employer takes it off um, or the state, you know, it's not a federal holiday. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. but there are states that do give this day off or you might have a really cool employer who uh, will offer that time. So those are just things to kind of keep in mind when considering uh, racial inequality in in what we might not recognize directly to be issues in society. So, Matt, does everyone have equal opportunities and access to residential housing?
0: Again, absolutely not. Are you sure? (laughs) Remember, segregation, again, did not end in the 1960s. Mm. Just because those two laws that are now on the books, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, are now on, on actual paper written down, that doesn't mean... That everybody is now treated equally, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: right? And are there's some arguments out there that say the U.S. is now more segregated than we were during the Jim Crow era? Thanks. Yeah, and one of this is due to multiple systematic practices. One of this is white flight. So I was talking about, or we've been talking about urban spaces. This is really because during the 1940s and the 1950s, there was this big uptick in uh, working in factories, right, which were in, in cities. And while that was happening, we were booming and booming and booming. Everybody flocked to cities. But once minorities started moving into cities as well, white people decided to GTFO. Right. Mm -hmm. So we call this white flight. It's the movement of white people out of the cities and into suburbs. Right. Uh, And so now we see inner cities really becoming full of minority people, whereas a lot of white people are out in the suburbs. Yeah. And this also, once everybody moved into the suburbs, this practice of redlining started taking place mm-hmm. which is the idea of a a company or a business actually marking red circles around a neighborhood and saying this is a white only neighborhood right yeah. so that's where that redlining comes from
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: and so these banks would not allow homes or businesses people of color in these certain areas yeah, and it's also done by racial steering where it's pushing people of color out of those certain areas and into say inner city areas mm-hmm. right so this is where that re- residential segregation really exists and has existed for all of american history yeah yeah
1: crazy <laughs> it's- um, what about the criminal justice system
0: the criminal justice system, I, I'm i going to tell you a story real quick. Um, <laughs> I started as a criminal justice major back so many years ago, right, mm-hmm. when I started college. And I have since moved on. And I <laughs> today, I kind of regret that I was a criminal justice major at one point mm-hmm. because of the system that it is um, – really bolstering but when it comes to race in the criminal justice system one in three black males Hmm. at some point in their life will be sent to jail or prison one Hmm. in three one in six latinos will also go to jail at some point in their lifetime this okay this These are big numbers, right? 33% and 16%. Okay, those are big numbers. Right. But when we say that the system is racially biased, it's when we compare it to white people, right? So one in 17 white men will go to jail at some point in their lifetime. That's almost six times less than black men. And that's almost three times fewer than Latino men. Okay. So that's just a massive difference between who goes to jail and prison and who doesn't, even if all races really commit crimes at the same rate. Okay. And that's just men. And when we look at women, one in 18 black women will go to jail or prison at some point in their life. One in 45 Latino women will go to jail or prison at some point in their life. whereas one in a hundred eleven white women will go to jail or prison at some point in their life. That is like mind-blowingly unequal.
1: yeah.
0: But Horizon, do you want to talk a little bit about what intersectionality is and where it came from? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I'm really happy to share on this. It, I There's pause here because I am so stuck um, and just like jaw dropped in, in uh, hearing these stats, which like as a sociologist, like we hear these numbers regularly uh, and but every once in a while it. It still can catch you off guard. So just you know, like think about think about that in uh, in relation uh, to you and the people you spend time with and who you're spending time with and uh, the impacts of of the criminal justice system uh, that exists, especially for those who don't look like you. Uh, so
0: cool. Not trying to cut you off, but real quick, how many students do you have in your class? Fifty. Fifty. Okay, so I'm around round that down to 48. Great. That would mean that if you taught a class of 48, uh, 16 of your students, if they were all Black men, mm-hmm. would go to prison in their lifetime. That's a third of your class. Okay, yeah. so just to give that kind of for you guys at home, like, that is a massive number. Imagine walking into class today or one day and mm-hmm. just a third of the class is gone, right? right? Just pushed out of, yeah. just to the sidelines. And that, like that number, all of the numbers really are mind blowing to me.
1: Yeah, yes, absolutely. So. And and note that I think is great imagery for students who need that visual representation. And, you know, so for, for my students, when you all come into class and you get into your groups, that means that two of your group members would be gone or in prison or have experienced jail time. So just like keep that for, for context. Uh, thank you for that. So intersectionality was coined originally by a black woman named Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, and I, I have talked to my students a little bit about this subject matter so uh, but really, it positions you to have an understanding of the ways in which your identity, which are often uh, most often outside of your control, is really what we're thinking here in the ways that who you are influences the oppression or adverse experiences that one might experience. So if you are taking notes by hand, you can take a space and uh, I want you to just like draw a, across right like a just draw like a a quadrant four squares right so you might on one line you might say you know so for myself like I am uh, a black woman Uh, I so one we can actually keep these separate I'm black I'm also a woman Uh, so those are two lines and then I'm going to draw another line uh, and that is going to give my We can say my teacher identity. We can talk about my sexual orientation. Uh, Then we can add in my my class and my status. So once you draw a line for each of these identities that you, you discuss, that point at the very center where all of those mark, like where all of your identity markers kind of come together, that would be that intersection of who you are. Uh, And obviously, the more you have, the bigger those get where you are experiencing forms of oppression that come from multiple sources. So originally, Crenshaw did this uh, in an attempt to help draw attention to the understanding that um, for black and queer women, that that intersection of being black, being a woman, being queer, uh, that that identity, those intersections kind of bring to the crux of who they are um now oftentimes though we've very much pulled away from this being a black feminist thought uh, an idea to really any individual can go and say well i have low economic status i'm white i'm trans or i'm black and i'm trans or whatever those identities are to come together to recognize those points of of oppression so uh, and Crenshaw acknowledges while this was originally intended for people of color uh, and women of color, uh, it doesn't necessarily, she wasn't assuming that it would only stay within this realm of thought and of uh, academia, but that people could use it and take it to apply it to their own lives. So, uh, and this is just, right, so when we think about our identity, it's never just one thing that can tell the full story. Matt can't, I don't know, actually, I don't know that I have a great example for this, but. Um, It's never just one sided. There are always multiple pieces that that bring us to um, understanding who we are, why we do the things that we do. Yeah. So, and then just a little bit on like practice in this. So the theory is the idea of of critiquing previous works and coming up with their own ideas that are both influencing and influenced by practice. What is this, Matt?
0: intersectionality being theoretical remember we talked theory and praxis yeah
1: (laughs) yeah sorry okay so just just cut the question of what the heck is this um that's funny so uh when when considering intersectionality we can look at this in in two ways right so we we think of it uh that theoretical framework which i kind of discussed and then there is the the practice of this, like the application to this. So oftentimes this theory is the idea of critiquing previous works and coming up with their own ideas that are both influencing and influenced by practice. So taking this concept of intersectionality and our understanding of intersectionality and applying it to, to different places, which I talked about, right? Crenshaw says, originally this was done so that I could bring attention to the racial and gender and uh, sexuality points of intersections that really influence the, the disconnect or the um, oppression that's being experienced by women of color who also identify as queer. Uh, but knowing that, like, no, it can be applied elsewhere. People will apply it elsewhere. So how do you take uh, this original piece and this original theory and, and pull it? To another direction. Uh, and then there is the praxis. So, the practice is the boots on the ground actively trying to change society and the lives faced by those different intersecting points of oppression. Uh, so, that's really what, what it says, right? The, the active engagement and recognizing that we all come to some degree, there is privilege. Um, A lot of us experience more than others, but that it exists and that it's real. All of you, regardless of, and this might step on some toes, and I'm okay with that, but regardless of your financial stability or instability, each and every one of you comes from a place of privilege because you are seeking a college education because you have access to that. And I myself too, right? I I did not grow up with a ton of money, but I am privileged in the fact that I have been able to attain multiple degrees as a woman of color. And I might be in debt forever for it. Uh, I might have student loans that will take a lifetime to pay off, but I had that Same. opportunity. <laughs> and, and therefore that places me in a position of privilege. So uh, I know that that is long-winded and I know that I've talked to my students a little bit about this, but uh, for the sake of time, let us continue. (laughs) Um, So Matt, can you just talk to us about this concept of whiteness?
0: Yeah, there's just so much when it comes to whiteness. It's definitely something that as Horizon has definitely seen, I have worked at over and over and over again through our time together and just growing as a student. But it we have to remember that it's not just minorities. When we talk about race, we can't just talk about minorities. Mm-hmm. This is, this may sound weird to some people, where I am in no way saying ignore uh, people of color. Instead, we should talk about at least have a conversation about how we even got to this point, because uh, we need to talk about whiteness to realize how we are, when I say we am talking collective white people, reinforcing institutional racism, okay? Mm-hmm. Being white is the standard, by which other racial and ethnic groups are being measured against. Yeah. Okay. So we think the closer you are to being white, the better a person you are. Mm-hmm. That killed me to say. Yes. But it, it's real. If we look at something we really haven't talked about, uh, colorism, and mm-hmm. say uh, when it comes to being black, okay, So really a lighter skinned black woman is more likely to be seen as prettier than a very dark skinned black woman. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're both black, but it's whether, how close you are to being white, right? The white standard of beauty. And really we as white people tend to not have to think about race, I tend to not have to think about my skin color because I'm not discriminated against right? when it and comes to my race.
1: Yeah. And you know, this is, this is, it's interesting that like Matt's been tasked to like kind of talk about this. And one of these examples that have always driven uh, Matt crazy with him having the great privilege of being my friend uh, <laughs> is, is, you know, we, we went to school in a town that was easily walkable. We could walk, um, for miles and miles and miles and like get to places pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, there, there is always like this ongoing thing, uh, that has happened with Matt and I when we are together. And that is Matt is perfectly okay walking when the crosswalk lights are red, when the crosswalk lights are clearly saying do not proceed uh, and my dear friend thinks it's great he's like I can walk I can go and oftentimes at the beginning of this process where I would stay back and he'd be like come on horizon let's go I'm like Matt I don't have the privilege of walking across this crosswalk because the lights red like I, I don't get to do that um, and you know for us like it's like we're close enough that I can just like give him a hard time. And I can say like, well, I don't get to do everything that you get to do uh, because I'm not white, Matt, you know? And um, there's like this, this joking nature that, that him and I can, can kind of give each other a hard time about, but that like, it's also really real and it kills him. And he's like, gosh, I suck. There are like so many times where he's like, you're making me feel like a terrible human. Like not my intention, but also it's the reality. He doesn't have to think about his race when he's walking across the crosswalk. He doesn't have to think about his race when he's getting pulled over. Um, he doesn't, there are just things that he doesn't have to think about for that people who are white or who just, uh, you know, have the privilege in, in this, in this area. There are things that he doesn't have to th- think about, which also means he's not talking about them. And and so that's just really real and just like a really practical way that Matt and I have had to navigate Uh, our friendship uh, as we navigate also race and sociology and you know uh, so
0: critical theory (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah but really and at least for me I know that at least in the very beginning I would honestly be almost feel attacked Mm -hmm. for this of course now that I'm looking at my bookshelf, I can't find it. But there's this excellent book written called White Fragility,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which has become one of my favorite books, especially when talking about race. But it's one of their main points is that people of color have they don't have to. But over time, they have built uh, this idea of racial stamina. Mm
1: hmm.
0: Whereas white people don't have to do that. So anytime that something is pointed out wrong that I do, I feel like I'm attacked, right? Mm-hmm. This is that idea that I have a low racial stamina. Mm-hmm. Um, I have since really grown on that. And I can say I hate all white men, even though I am a white man. But it, it's really nobody's perfect. And, and we do need to have these conversations about whiteness and with your friends. But we also have to remember that it's not people of color's job to make us white people be cognitive of our mm-hmm. racial identity. Yeah. Right. It's not, it's not Horizon's job to tell me all the things to do to be a better person, to be a better friend. Mm-hmm. I do have to go out and learn for myself. There's many books, many articles, many uh, newspaper articles doing that job that I don't have to ask my friend and put her maybe in that awkward position of yeah, you did something offensive, so on and so on and so on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think too, you know, I I don't want to spend too much more time here, but uh, part of that, you know, it it's absolutely real. Like it, I I would say, well, I know I can only directly speak for myself. Uh, there there is this this idea with like, well, yes, it's really taxing, and I don't. And I can't right? like people say like, well, you know, we call this tokenism in the classroom oftentimes where, oh, you're the only person of color in this class. You have to be able to speak for all people of color. Like, no, I am one person of color with only my experience. And that's the only experience I can speak to. So I can't say all people of color would be happy to answer your questions. But I know for myself that, you know, um, Matt, you know, we talked a little bit about when we became friends or like that moment that you realize like, oh yeah, like Horizon and I are friends. Um, and we were sitting in Buffalo Wild Wings uh, eating dinner and you asked a question and I just like answered. I was happy to have that conversation with you. Um I probably had every right to be like, this guy's a fool. See you later. I don't have time for it. But there was dialogue. Her life there. might have been
0: easier had she done that.
1: <laughs> it wouldn't have been as fun, though. That's for sure. Grad school would not have been as fun had I walked away that day. Uh, you know, and and so that's it, though. Like, I am happy to have conversations. And I think more often than not, what you have to do is just like, ask a person like, hey, like I know that this like, can I ask this question? We're either going to say yes or I'm going to tell you no, right? Like, <laughs> there's not much, like, there there isn't a ton more than that. And so I just think that that's important. Yes, you have to do the work. No, it's not my responsibility. But also I love when Matt and I have the opportunities and the spaces to have those conversations together. Because uh, it grows our friendship, and it grows our knowledge, and it grows our critical thinking, and, and we're sociologists, so that's kind of what we spend our life doing. So yeah, are we good to move on into colorblind racism?
0: Absolutely. Do you want to talk a little bit about it?
1: Yeah, um, I'd love to. So colorblind racism is this idea that race no longer matters. Uh, we live in a post-racial society, Right uh
0: wrong absolutely race race (laughs) means nothing to me go back on mute uh right
1: these (laughs) so these are the things right race no longer matters we live in a post-racial society and this is really just this idea that we ignore race completely but here's the problem while it would be all rainbows and butterflies for us to not acknowledge race and uh, not acknowledge our racial differences and the racial struggles that exist. And by ignoring race, we can't actually resolve anything. Uh, it just like sediments the problems because they're not being discussed, right? So um, when <laughs> you pour cement, right, we frame things, great. Uh, we pour cement and then we let it sit to dry. That's, this is this idea, right? Uh, we are framing our discussion surrounding race. We pour the cement, and that is all of the stuff that is very real about race, and then we walk away, right? Because if we stay there, well, then maybe you have to smooth it out, or we just, like, leave it there, and it dries up, because we don't want to talk about it. Uh, So it doesn't change, you know, the point really being just that uh, we can't fix it if we aren't addressing it, if we're not having the conversation. Which is why I tell my friend, hey, Matt, I can't walk across the street until the light is green. I feel less safe by walking across the street on a red light. Those are all things. Um, but when we ignore it, then it's not discussing it, right? It's the silly concept that we hear so often. You go to Gosh, the doctor.
0: Gosh, <laughs> why do you always have to bring race into everything?
1: <laughs> because it's real, <laughs> And it's the experience that is being lived by so many people. Therefore, we have to address it. You funny story, you guys. Matt and I go to a conference every
0: year. (laughs) Oh, no.
1: My dear friend, Matt, and I go to a research conference every year. Last year, like just a year ago, last week, um, we were in Oakland, California, going to a conference Um, and we were out Uh, For an evening, grab dinner, uh, we grabbed a drink, and um, we were on the Lime scooters, right? We all know Lime scooters have just been around for a couple of years now. Um, And Matt and I are coming back from a friend's uh, Airbnb. When we get back to our hotel, uh, Matt goes up a curb, and it's safe, but then hits another curb and throws himself off of the scooter, Falls, yada, yada. He gets back up, gets back on the scooter, and drives it to park the scooter. We're like, well, that was a gnarly fall. Hopefully, you're okay. And Matt turns to, f- comes to find out. Matt spends that night, the next day, and I think another two days having a ton of pain in his elbow. He had broken his elbow. If he doesn't go to the doctor, Matt didn't go to the doctor. <laughs> For days, his broken elbow couldn't be fixed. He ignored it, but his like ignoring the broken elbow didn't change that his elbow was broken, right? Ignoring race doesn't change that there are issues with race. I have a friend who uses a quote so often that just like comes back to me in cases like this. And it is our ability in which we can tolerate something Uh, or our ability in which we can stomach something doesn't necessarily change the reality of said thing. And I think that's just really powerful and speaks to this idea of colorblind racism. It does matter. We see it today. It is still real. People are still experiencing uh, racial inequality and racism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so when we ignore it, it reinforces that the idea that everyone is treated equal. Therefore, we're not addressing things like inequality, racial, uh, socioeconomic status, gender, da 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 da. So we could go on. Uh, and that is really, really uh, kind of this, this concept of colorblind racism. Um, and also, you guys just <laughs> got a really fun story out of it with Matt's broken elbow. It's
0: the first time I ever broke it broke a bone and of course it had to be with horizon because that's just how our friendship works
1: yeah yeah we he kept he tried <laughs> he tried and now it's mostly better it still has painful days right but you know he had Absolutely. to address and the issue you had to address the root issue of having a broken bone
0: right and really ignoring it just made it worse
1: mm-hmm. right? yeah
0: because I also, I still had to get dressed the next day, right? So I still had to try and wear a button-up shirt the next day with this problem still there. I had to get on an airplane. Mm -hmm. I had to drive two and a half hours back up to Flagstaff, Mm -hmm. right? All with this broken elbow. Ignoring it doesn't make it go away.
1: Right, right. Absolutely. Uh, So... Yeah, that is really all we have, except for Matt.
0: Do you have a joke? I think this is probably the worst one, but I feel like you guys might enjoy it. All right. All right. So I was actually just talking to my cousin the other day. Uh, My cousin and her wife, they just bought three kittens and named them Spoon, Fork, and Knife. And when I asked my cousin why... He just grinned and said, They're catery. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, it's, it's so Wait. good. So good. So cheesy. My goodness. Well, thank you all for joining us for another episode of Introduction to Sociology COVID Style. Uh, actually, COVID <laughs> Style, COVID Edition. Hopefully, as you are practicing social distancing, you are still able to exercise. Uh, play music, dance, do puzzles, uh, and really just engage your creative sides a little bit better And that you are all finding ways to navigate your learning best so that you can still be successful. Um, So until next time, go ahead and drink good water, hydrate always, enjoy a nice cup of tea, and until... Next tea time.